Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Saturday Burnt Toast and Coffee Show with apologist William Hemsworth on the Four Persons Network. William is passionate about teaching the faith. He is a convert that attended a Baptist seminary. He is a father and a catechist that will encourage you to live the faith, evangelize, and defend it. To call into the show, the number is 515-602-9655. Once again, the phone number to call into the show is 515-602-9655. Ladies and gentlemen, William Hemsworth. Good morning if you're on the West Coast and good afternoon if you're on the East Coast. My name is William Hemsworth. Great to be with you all. And what an exciting time it is here on the Four Persons Radio Network. Well, good morning, William. How's the weather out on your side of the country? You know, John, the weather is absolutely fantastic. It's starting to get a little warm, though. The high's supposed to be 92 today, but you know what? The allergies are starting to go away. It's a beautiful day, and you know what? It's great to be here on the four persons talking about the faith on a Saturday morning. It's great to be. How's the weather in Virginia? I mean, it's moderate for May. It, it's actually been up to now a little bit on the cool side, but uh, right now we're about where you'd expect it to be in May, 75 degrees, you know, um, right right in that area. Hey, today is, uh, for those who may not know, a pretty important day in our faith. It is the 106th anniversary of the first apparition of Our Lady in Fatima. Yes, it is. It's uh, it's amazing how much time has flown by already since that apparition has uh, has come about, and it's definitely something that we should be paying attention to. And so, if you're not familiar with Our Lady of Fatima, maybe just take a few minutes and do a little research and uh, enlighten yourself a little bit. We'll put a link in the show notes, uh, so anyone listening in the archive. Uh, We'll put a link in the show notes so, for more information on the Lady Fatima. So, William, welcome to the Four Persons Network. We're so thrilled to have you as our newest apologist and can't wait to hear what we're going uh, over in today's show. So what's on the menu other than uh, burnt toast and coffee? Well, first of all, I thank you for allowing me to come on your network um, just just to share and talk about the faith. It's, it's a great honor of mine, and it's going to be Hopefully people learn something from the show, but today we are going to talk about a saint of the day. Now, today's saint is my patron saint. That's why I'm picking him for today since this is the first episode. But going forward, it will literally be whosoever feast day it is going forward. Uh, we're going to talk about the mass readings a little bit, and then we'll get into my story about how I became Catholic. So that is, that's what's on deck for today. Awesome. So... So I guess first and foremost, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started with our saint. Um, in my opinion, and, and John, I know I've said this before in the archives when you interviewed me when the uh, show, when the network first started, 
but St. Polycarp, he's my patron. And I'm not going to get into a lot of detail um, as to why I picked him, but please go back in the archives and take a listen. But I just want to give you some background about who he is um, and how important he is, really. So Polycarp, uh, St. Polycarp, he was the Bishop of Smyrna, and he was taught by St. John the Apostle. And he was also a friend of St. Ignatius of Antioch, as, as maybe you may or may not know, those listening, was a very important Christian leader at the beginning of the second century. And we have seven letters of his that are still around that you can go read. And I encourage everyone to go ahead and do so, because just from reading those seven letters, you will learn so much about the faith. It's not even funny. Now, St. Ignatius, though, on his way to Rome to be martyred, he visited Polycarp in Smyrna, and he sent him a personal letter. That's one of the letters that we could read. Now, the churches of Asia, of Asia Minor, they recognized the leadership of Polycarp and chose him as a representative to discuss with Pope Anacetus the date of the Easter celebration in Rome, which we kind of take for granted today, but it was actually a major controversy in the early church, and really even to this day, the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, they're a week away as far as time goes to celebrate Easter. So it's still something that's around. Now, Polycarp, we only have one letter of his that is preserved, and that's his letter to the Church of the Philippians, the same one that St. Paul wrote to. Now, at age 86, Polycarp was led um, into the stadium in Smyrna to be burned alive, but the flames did not harm him, harm him and he was finally killed by a sword, or some say a dagger. Either way, he was stabbed. All right? mm-hmm. uh, the, the centurion ordered his body to be burned, and in the account of his martyrdom, um, we read that his bones were collected because they were more precious than gold. And they, were, and they prayed before them on the anniversary of his birthday, now, that's not his earthly birthday, but the birthday of his martyrdom, where he went to heaven for the faith. And so we have an early account of relics there. So he's very important because his faith was steadfast. He's, he was an older gentleman, again, 86. And the emperor tried to have some compassion on him, say, just one pinch of incense. And he said, 86 years, I've served my God and king, and he's never betrayed me. Why would I betray him? I kind of summarized that. Before he died, he said, Father, I bless thee for having me, having made me worthy of this day and hour. And for those who are curious, he is actually the patron saint for the relief of earaches, which I found kind of fascinating. Didn't know that before. So that is St. Polycarp. So if you, his actual feast day is February 23rd, but go ahead, check his stuff out. You could read that letter to the Philippians in maybe 20 or 25 minutes. It's a very worthwhile read. All right. The master. It's just amazing. It's amazing, William, how much. Uh, one of the very first shows we did when we launched this network about five weeks ago was on just the subject you, you discussed as to how, why does the church move Good Friday and Easter every year? Why is it a moving date instead of, you know, fixed? I mean, we pretty much know that. The, the crucifixion was on April 3rd, 33 AD. We pretty much have all the proof we need. Need, But uh, it, it's kind of funny. Like you said, these things are taken for granted today. 
were things that had to be worked out, had to be settled uh, settled out by the early church. I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah, and that's actually a, something that – it's actually one of the things that was discussed um, at the Council of Nicaea. Um, it's what – you know, the Council of Nicaea is known for condemning the Aryan controversy and for good reason. But one of the other things it dealt with was this whole day to Easter, and maybe we can get into that in, a, in another show. Because it's fa- it'll be fascinating just to go through everything that was discussed at, at, the, at Nicaea. Yeah, to be honest with you, William, I I have difficulty getting past Santa Claus punching a heretic in the face. That's the that's the hardest thing for me to get past. Oh, classic memes for those that follow me on Facebook. Every year I post <laughs> a bunch of those. Yeah, we I, it's something I look forward to. I have a file just with all of those memes. I think there's like ten of them I have. <laughs> so it's it's. It's fun. Whether it really happened or not, some will dispute it, but either way, it's fun. Right. So, all right. The mass readings this week, though, and for those that aren't aware, tomorrow is Mother's Day, so call your mom. Now, not only call your earthly mom, call your spiritual mom, Mother Mary. After all, if you are a Christian, as the book of Revelation says, she is the mother of all Christians. So, take a moment, say thank you, say a Hail Mary. And just thank her for saying yes for bringing the Savior into the world. First reading for tomorrow, the sixth Sunday of Easter, if you could believe that. It's already been six weeks since Easter. We're coming up on the end of the season here. It comes from the Acts chapter 8, verses 5 through 8 and 14 through 17. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Christ to them. With one accord, the crowds paid attention to what was said by Philip. When they heard it and saw the signs he was doing, for unclean spirits crying out in a loud voice came out of many possessed people, and many paralyzed or crippled people were cured. There was great joy in the city. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who went down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for it had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So first of all, I want to talk about this uh, figure named Philip. Because this is actually, this name here is very important to me. This is who I named my youngest son after. Uh, so Philip, he was one of the seven deacons that were appointed back in chapter 6 of Acts. And his ministry was to the regions of Judea and Samaria. And for those that don't know about Samaria, maybe this is one of those other things we take for granted. But go all the way back to John chapter 4, where Jesus and the disciples stopped in Samaria. Jesus talked to the woman at the well, etc. The Samaritans and the Jews were enemies. The Jews considered the Samaritans half-breeds. Because way back in the Old Testament, um, during one of the exiles, they started intermingling, if you will, with the Assyrians. And so they were considered half-breeds. They had, Samaritans had their own temple. The Jews had their own temple. So it was a big thing. So here we see Philip here um, going. He's making his ministry. He's displaying that the power of the gospel will make friends out of enemies. Okay? It's very important here. Many accepted his message, and they came for baptism. So it doesn't matter the racial or religious tensions that the Jews and Samaritans had, even though that could be traced back centuries. The gospel has the power to overcome all of that. 
Now, what's interesting later on in this passage, we read about how they sent Peter and John because the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon them. They had only been baptized, and we read about Peter and John laying hands on them and receiving the Holy Spirit. This is very important here. This is confirmation. I don't know if a lot of people put that together or not. What happens in confirmation? The bishop lays hands on the person, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So it confirms, it finishes Christian initiation. We've already read about them being baptized. Now hands are laid upon them, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. My friends, here's confirmation in the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times we don't realize that. We read it in a more superficial manner. Now, the second, the, for those that want to read the psalm, I'm not going to go over the psalm, but it's uh, Psalm 66, verses 1 through 3, 4 through 5, 6 through 7, 16, and 20. But I will just say the first line of it. Shout joy, joyfully to God, all the earth. Sing praise to the glory of his name. That's something we should be doing every single day, every moment of our lives, even when times are difficult. Now, the second reading, it's like the apologist anthem. It's 1 Peter three fifteen through 18. The sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. But do it with gentleness and reverence, keeping your conscience clear, so that when you are maligned, those who defame your good conduct in Christ may themselves be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that be the will of God, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once, the righteous for the sake of the unrighteous, that he might lead you to God. Put to death in the flesh, he was brought to life in the spirit. So here we are called by St. Peter himself to make a defense. Apologia is the Greek word, or apologia as some will say. That's where we get our term for apologetics, where we use reason, we use our God-given intellect in combination with our faith to defend the faith, but we do it with respect, we, we're, in it. we're composed, and we do it in a loving manner so that people can understand. So maybe all of these misconceptions about the Catholic faith are answered. Let's be honest, there's a lot out there, and I know, John, you deal with that a lot in all these Facebook yeah. theology groups. Okay. Yeah. It's it's still amazing to me that in this day and age, with all the knowledge we have that's at our fingertips, that people still say that Catholics worship Mary. I'll never understand that. Yeah, <laughs> okay. and, and, and 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 you know, it's amazing that the first part of of Catholic apologetics is untangling what they think the doctrine. Believes so that you can then go and defend what it actually believe uh, actually right. means. But uh, I'll just give one example: purgatory. They have this misconception that purgatory is 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 kind of a third option. It's kind of a purgatory is is for those guys that just those tweeners. <laughs> they fell in between. Well, he's right. not quite good enough for heaven, but he's not quite bad enough for hell. So we'll throw him in purgatory for a thousand years while God kind of makes up his mind. No, not, not the case. Not the case at all. Nope. All the souls that are in purgatory are saved souls that have to uh, suffer temporally. Uh, and, and, oh, by the way, 
the reading that you just showed, Peter, right here, confirms the necessity of temporal suffering, that we sometimes have to accept temporal suffering. It's right in the reading that you just showed. Yep. Yes, yeah, so we, we believe wholeheartedly in Hebrews, I think it's 928, that it is appointed man to die once and after that the judgment. Once we die, we are judged whether we are going to heaven or hell. If you go to purgatory, it's temporary. You are already guaranteed to go to heaven. It's not a third eternal state. It's not a second chance for redemption. You've already been judged. That's which way you're going to go. So, all right, gospel reading for tomorrow. All right, John chapter 14, verses 15 through 21. Jesus said to his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you always, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot accept, but it neither sees nor knows him. But you know him, because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me. But you will see me because I live and you will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and observes them is the one who loves me. And whoever loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and reveal myself to him. These are some very comforting words and also challenging words at the same time by our Lord Jesus Christ. Very, right off the bat, he says, if you, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So our commitment to Christ is proved by works and not by words, mm-hmm. so much for faith alone. Okay? Jesus here says, you will keep my commandments if you love me. So there is this concept called antinomianism, which says, you know, you don't have to follow any aspects of the law or anything like that. And by no means am I saying we're saved by works. But God did give us a guide in the Ten Commandments on what we are, how we are supposed to live. Those are part of the commandments that Jesus is talking about here. And they're all summed up in love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? So love God, love your neighbor. Jesus says, love, if you love me, my commandments. Yeah. And in verse, in verse 17, he says, I'll always be with you. Jesus said this many times throughout the Gospels, most famously in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. Though he's not here physically anymore, he's reassuring his disciples that I'm always going to be with you. Because the Holy Spirit is going to be with you. I'm with the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, we also he, he's also with us in another way, in the Eucharist. He's here, body, blood, soul, and divinity, in the Blessed Sacrament. And I think we understand that as Catholics from a ment, from maybe from an intellectual aspect, but maybe from a spiritual aspect, sometimes we don't take that to heart because I think sometimes we take. Unfortunately, I hate to say this, John. I think we take the Eucharist for granted sometimes. Amen. Okay, we we think it's always here. But we just, become not, we become tone deaf to it. We become blind to it. Uh, we, uh, we just become numb to it. And um, you know, you know, God can bring good out of any bad situation. I think the good that God brought out of the whole COVID thing is that we were deprived of that for a time. 
and it, and it kind of woke us up to how important it is because we grieved it. We hungered for it. Um, um, and, and, you know, sometimes you have to lose something at least temporarily to realize how valuable it is to you. Yeah, that's right. And, and unfortunately, this didn't happen too long ago, but I think in many, in some instances, just from what I've observed, um, I think for a lot of people right back to where we were before COVID, where we're taking it for granted again, where just a year and a half, two years ago, we didn't have all the access we had to do it now. We have these short-term memories, unfortunately. Yeah. So, well, call, go going back to the gospel reading that you just did, I, I think it's very, very important that people tie part A to part B because they're connected. Uh, God, God says in uh, Jesus says in part A, those who love me will keep my commandments, and in part B he says, and I will be with you even until the end of the age. Well, I will be with who? Those who keep my commandments. The two are linked. Yep. So uh, there are there are a lot of people Jesus says who will honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Right, and. I'm going to quote a Protestant um, author here, Brennan Manning. He said something very powerful in one of his books. I think it's called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And he said, the greatest cause of atheism in the world is those who honor God with their lips at church, walk out the door, and get on with their lifestyle. So if we are keeping the commands of Christ, it's going to change our lives. And it's not just going to be a Sunday thing at Mass. Mm-hmm. It's going to be seven days a week, 365 days a year. Now, this doesn't mean we're not going to mess up. I mean, we still have concupiscence and all that. We're, we are going to sin and thank God for confession. But keep loving Christ, having faith in Christ, and doing what he tells us to do is going to impact every aspect of our lives, personally, uh, spiritually, at work, with our family, everywhere people mm-hmm. will know that we are his disciples and at that and point. and william that is the thread that holds the entire new testament together from the first chapter of matthew to the last chapter of revelation the thread that holds the whole new testament together can be summed up in the parable of the two sons that's in matthew chapter 21 the first son said, yes, Father, I'll go into the vineyard, but he didn't go. The second son said, no, I won't go into the vineyard, but later he repented and went. And, you know, one of the readings that you did, William, was was about uh, the Samaritans. And Jesus' most, maybe possibly his most famous parable was of the Good Samaritan. William, talk about the cultural context of that. Back, Back then, to say anything good about a Samaritan was... Scandalous, and the the idea that that the Samaritan could be esteemed above the priest and the Levite was was just it was impossible. It was it was scandalous to even suggest yeah. such a thing, and yet that's exactly what Jesus says because in that parable, it is the priest who said that he would go into the vineyard but didn't. It was the Levite who said he would go into the vineyard and didn't. And the Samaritan, who was supposedly the outcast, supposedly the reprobate, 
was the one who ended up doing the will of God. And isn't that the thread that, that, that holds Matthew to Revelation, the whole New Testament together? Yeah. Jesus has, I mean, Jesus did not come just for the Jewish people. He came for everybody. And we talk about Samaria, John. I'm, I have to go back to John chapter 4. You know, Jesus talking to the woman at the well. This woman came later in the day when it's hot because she was the social outcast. I mean, realistically. And, and something that I think may go under the radar here, Jews would go the long way to Jerusalem to go around Samaria because if they were to go through Samaria, they would be considered ritually unclean and couldn't go to the temple. But here was Jesus in Samaria with his disciples ministering to this lady. And here in the book of Acts, now we have Philip doing the same thing, following the Lord's lead. That's, you know, saying, hey, Jesus came. He died for the sins of the world. That includes you. The gospel is powerful. And like you said, it ties the whole thread of the New Testament together. Matthew, the revelation that Jesus came that all may be saved and have knowledge of the truth. And that yes. comes later on in, um, I believe it's Second Peter. If I, am, yes, I could be, because I could we're be wrong. Saved, we're saved by what we are, not by who we are. And, right. and look, you and I are both devout Catholics. But there are a lot of Catholics that are going to hell. I'm sorry to say, uh, because they're yeah. not because they're not living it. Uh, and and the, and the message in very very early in the gospel, very very early in Matthew's gospel, I think it's chapter three, when John gives out that warning: Do not presume to say to yourselves, "We are sons of Abraham," for God can raise up from these stones sons to Abraham. And and that is the message of the gospel: is that well. Well, the Pharisees and the scribes, the leaders of the day, were the ones rejected by Christ. The ones that were raised up were the woman at the well, Mary Magdalene, uh, the, the Peter, the fisherman, who, who fell at Jesus' feet and said, depart from me, I am a miserable sinner. It, it's the outcast that was raised up because they saw the misery of their own sin. They recognized that they needed a physician. Right. And to put it in its modern context, I mean, how many, how many people have we encountered, John? Um, children of devout Catholics, they go to church every week, and they say, "Yeah, I'm, I'm Catholic," but do their lives show it? Um, have they just going to mass, and then the rest of the week, you know, they're in hedonism or something? I mean. Mm-hmm. Just because just because I go to church, just because I'm devout, does not mean that my children are. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm setting the example for them. But at some point, they need to choose their own. They're they're not gonna they're not gonna get to heaven, if you will, based on what I do. They're gonna go to heaven based on them alone and their relationship with Christ, not on my relationship with Christ. I can only lay that example. Um. So like you said, there's a lot of people who are saying, well, let's go back to the words of Jesus. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is my disciple. Right. I mean, that goes to say that just because you say you're a Christian does not mean, in fact, that you are. And Jesus tells us in the gospel, he that loves me 
will do my commandments. So, I think, my friends, I think James, are we doing the commandments? I think James said it best, or or one of the one of the best is the way that James said it. He says, "You say that you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works." This is what James says in chapter two, and when we listen to the words that Jesus said, that's how he challenged us. If you will be my disciple, you must deny yourself daily, take up your cross, and follow me. And this is what Peter is talking about. The test of faith is you're going to be challenged. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to suffer. And there's going to be times when the mind of your faith has to assent to what the eyes of your, uh, of your body deny. And you brought up the, the perfect classic example, the pinnacle of our, of our faith. William, is when we present ourselves at Holy Communion, when the priest raises that host, and your eyes are telling you that it's a piece of bread. Your eyes are telling you that it's a piece of bread. But the priest raises that host and says, the body of Christ. And you assent by saying, amen, which means, yes, it is so. So the eyes of faith see it for what it is, while the eyes of the flesh cannot. And that's the problem with sola scriptura. That's the problem with sola fide is that we limit our knowledge and our faith to what our eyes can perceive and what our mind can perceive rather than what God told us is so. And we must uh, assent to uh, by obedience and by faith. Yep. Yeah, 100%. Anyway, my friends, there's a lot that can, we can go – uh, these scripture readings – uh, for tomorrow's mass, as always, they're always uh, thought-provoking. Uh, they challenge us, um, so let's take them seriously and let's pray about them. Let's listen. Let's take some 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 time to privately study them on our own, and uh, not just. So next, this goes to a challenge to everyone out there. Anyway, you need to be praying and reading scripture every day. It, those are the two tools in your toolbox that you need to have. There's other ones, and we'll talk about those throughout the next few weeks. Yep. Now, but William Hemsworth. <laughs> you need to read Scripture every day, at a minimum, the daily Mass readings. You need to spend some time in prayer. Now, I'm not saying you need to spend three hours or a day in prayer, or even an hour. If you're not praying now, start with five minutes. It's okay. Start. You're going to grow immensely just from doing those two things. And at the yep. end of the show, I'll give you another book for some homework. But one thing I want to talk about today is how I became Catholic. Um, I want people to understand where I'm coming from as we go, as we go on from here in, the, in this show, because I did not grow up Catholic. In fact, I didn't start attending church until I was 12 years old. Okay, I grew up in uh, Southern California, and one day my mom said my – mom, my mom grew up Catholic. She is no longer a practicing Catholic, so pray for her. But she said one day, we're going to go to church. And there was a church up the street, uh, maybe two miles from my house, uh, called, called Sunset Wesleyan Church. And um, she took us there. I remember that first day very vividly because my dad stayed home. And I remember wanting to stay home with my dad. But my mom took us. And um, we walked in. It was more of a traditional church. The music was piano only. And looking back, and you know, 
12 year old kid piano only like oh man this is this is kind of lame <laughs> okay i'm 12 i didn't know any better but looking back it was beautiful music you know god rest the woman's soul maxine she passed away a few years ago but we started we kept going to that church every week and eventually my dad started coming um i went to camp that summer i believe it was i was 13 by that point and made my profession of faith in Christ, you know, accepted Christ as my savior. Um, a couple months later in my church, I got baptized. Um, I, there was a thing in the bulletin saying, if you wanted to be baptized, fill out this card. I filled it out, and I filled it out without my parents knowing that I filled it out. My parents found out when they got the letter in the mail saying that there was a baptism class. <laughs> and my sister was already signed up for it. Well, I got baptized later on. Trinitarian formula. It was a valid baptism for those that are wondering. The church accepts all baptisms that are in the Trinitarian formula. Um, got very involved in youth group. Um, became the youth group president. Uh, was in the praise band. Yeah, we had one of those eventually. Even though I can't sing a lick, I was in it. And when I joined the army, I became a chaplain assistant. And so I'm kind of speeding through this because it's already 930. We're already 30 minutes into the show. But I joined the Army. Um, I had always felt this call to ministry. And I scored high enough on my ASVAB test that I was, the recruiter said I could choose any job that I wanted. And so I saw this job called chaplain assistant. And I was like, you know, that's, what I, that's the job I want to do in the Army. And for those that don't know what a chaplain assistant does, you're, you, you assist the soldiers with all of their religious needs. It doesn't matter what religion they are. So you're assigned to the you're assigned to the chaplain, and the chaplain may be um, Protestant, and that includes any denomination in Protestantism. It's just in the army, in the military, it's just Protestant. There it is. Um, first chaplain I worked for was actually a Presbyterian chaplain, um, Chaplain Routzinger, not Ratzinger, Routzinger. <laughs> Want to make that distinction? And he was a great guy. He took me under his wing um, because it was my first time away from home. He, he, he was a great guy. He did everything he could to help the soldiers. He was with them everywhere and always talked about the love of Christ with every single one of them. So it was a great thing to see as a, as a 18, 19 year old. Um, Second chaplain I worked for was actually from Calvary Chapel. And him, I, him and I didn't get along very well for some reason. But looking back, I was just young and dumb, John. You know what I mean? When you're 20 years old. Yeah. <laughs> Been there, done that. But if I could ever find him, I would want, I'd love to apologize to him. So Chaplain Smith, if you happen to be listening to this, I apologize. But it was, it was my time in the military that really first exposed me to Catholicism because we had to – assist at every worship service in the chapel. And so I remember the chapel at Hunter Army Airfield where I was stationed. The first service was a Episcopalian service. It was at 8 o'clock in the morning. And the Catholic Mass was at 9.30 and the Protestant service was at 11. And so one Sunday I decided to listen to the Catholic Mass because I you know I'd heard about it. And I had some of that, some misconceptions, of course, as some Protestants do, you know, like Catholics don't read the Bible. And for some reason, I had this idea that priests don't preach. 
I don't know where that came from. Mm-hmm. But I sat in on this uh, mass. You know, there was this long reading from Isaiah. Um, there was a reading from Romans, and then there was a reading from the Gospel of Mark. And I was like, wow, that's a lot of scripture. And then the priest comes up, and no joke, John, he gave this 45-minute homily on the Gospel reading. And I remember that vividly because the Protestant chaplain came up because we were running – the mass was running really late, and his, his people were outside waiting to start their service. <laughs> but that was kind of my first exposure, and so I kind of took that to heart, but at the same time kind of tucked it away, again, because I was you know, 20, 21 years old. To fast forward a little bit, um, my wife, she was, she was born Catholic. She's a cradle Catholic. And when we had gotten engaged, she had made the comment like, you know, I, really, I would really love to get married in the Catholic Church. And, you know, offhand, I was like, well, then why don't I just become Catholic and we get married in the Catholic Church? So, you know, went through RCIA. I had to go through RCIA a couple times because I had this whole annulment issue because, again, I was young and dumb when I was 20 years old. I had to get this whole annulment thing done, so I had to go through RCIA twice. But really, I didn't um, – I didn't really buy into everything the church taught. Okay, like the real presence and all that. And looking back, it was just really stupid. It was it was pride on my part, really. Um, I was coming into the church to make my future wife happy, and not so much because I believed it was true. And so I tell everyone now that I talk to, that is the worst reason to come into the church. If you're coming into the church just to make your wife happy, it's going to cause some issues later on. Um as it did later on in my case. We're good, right. obviously. But um, I'm going to fast forward just a, a little more here. So at, because of the annulment, um, we could not get married in the Catholic Church right away. So my one of my Protestant chaplains um, did the ceremony for us. We got married. And finally, the annulment came back favorably. It took 18 months. Thankfully, Pope Francis has streamlined the process a little more for those who are going through that process because it can, it, it does open up some old wounds for people. So it can be difficult. It can be a difficult process. And we'll talk more about annulments in a future episode. But um, the annulment came back and we, we were able to get married in the, get our marriage convalidated in the church. So we're all good to go there too. But during this time, I was like, you know, I just don't believe everything the church teaches. And so I kind of – obviously, I fell away a lot, and so I decided that you know, I, was, I was Protestant again. And to be honest, even though I had come into the church, I really wasn't Catholic. It was pretty much by name only. I, I was not practicing. Mm-hmm. I did not believe everything the church taught. I didn't believe in purgatory. I didn't believe in the real presence, which shames me to say now with all my heart. But – I decided now, I let me inter- at- let me interject sure. something here because you're yep. you're you were on the same struggle that many many Catholics have been on and that is I'm Catholic but <laughs> that um Catholic but group and 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 what what you're basically saying and you hadn't thought it through but what you're basically saying is I'm Catholic as long as I understand the teaching on a particular doctrine and you had to get past that hurdle of, okay, I'm going to believe it because the church taught it, and the church is guided by the Holy Spirit. And it's that whole, 
It's that whole you don't see so you can believe, you believe so you can then see. And that's what uh, St. Augustine uh, taught us, is that we must right. believe first so that we th- then can see. So sorry for interrupting, but I wanted to no, interject it's okay. that. But yeah, I mean, it's essentially, though, I, I, at that point, I considered myself uh, Baptist um, for, for all intents and purposes, and later on, maybe even Lutheran. So I'll explain that later, because I actually have ordinations in both denominations, believe it or not. <laughs> Some mm-hmm. people don't know that. But anyway, I, just, I, had, I had enrolled in this in a Baptist seminary, and I enrolled in their church history program. And part of the reason why is, one, I love history, but secondly, I was listening to James White, and all Catholic colleges know who James White is. Yeah. All right? He is no friend of the church. And he said, you know what? If you study church history, you'll see that it wasn't Catholic. So I'm like, okay. Because I heard, I heard Catholic apologists like Jimmy Aiken say, you know, the early church was Catholic. And so I was like, okay, I'll study church history to prove that that's not the case. Well, here I am. But anyway, let's move on for a second. <laughs> um, I had talked about St. Polycarp at the top of the show. He's one of the first church fathers I read, and he quoted from the book of Tobit. And I'm like, okay, where's this book of Tobit? Oh, wait, it's in what Protestants call the Apocrypha, but Catholics call the Deuterocanon and believe it's divinely inspired. So here's Polycarp in the second century saying that Tobit is inspired, essentially. And not only that, in his martyrdom, his followers picked up his bones so they could pray in their presence on the anniversary of his martyrdom. And for those that don't know, that is relics. So there's like two things right there, early second century, done deal. So I'm like, okay, so let's move on. Um, In my class, we had started learning about Justin Martyr. Now, Justin Martyr was the first lay apologist. And we, we were reading from this book called Getting to Know the Church Fathers, an Evangelical Introduction. And what's interesting about this book is the author, and I have that book on my bookshelf, but I don't have, the author's name escapes me at the moment. He used to be a Baptist, but after reading the Church Fathers, decided he was going to be Episcopalian. Now, looking back, I'm like, okay, he saw something in the early church, but he's not wanting to fully accept it. <laughs> All right. right. He's not fully he's not fully wanting to accept the papacy. That's pretty much the only qualm that he has when he read through this book. But this book had different excerpts from the Church Fathers, and I decided, you know what, I'm gonna go and read the whole thing for myself. And so I pull up Justin Martyr in my Logos Bible software, which was the Protestant version of Verbum. I have Verbum now. Great software if anyone can afford it. It is quite pricey. Um but Justin Martyr describes the mass and he's talking about you know on the day of the sun we rise together and pray um and the the prophets are read the memoirs of the apostles are read um bread and wine is brought forth and the presider prays over them and people say amen at distribution because we believe it's the body and blood of christ the same body and blood of christ that was crucified for our sins and i'm like whoa dude I say dude a lot. Um, I grew up in Southern California. Okay. Um, <laughs> You're forgiven. So, <laughs> yeah, even my students, when I say dude, they're like, what? So I'm a yeah, teacher. Let's just, let's just interject. I, I may, maybe this was not appropriate, but I just want to interject one thing about California uh, that a lot of people may not realize. 
there are an awful lot of cities and towns in California named after revered Catholic saints. A oh. lot. San yep. Diego, San Gabriel, even Los Angeles is called City of Angels, even though it's anything San Francisco, but. Santa, Santa Francisco, Monica, yeah, San Luis Obispo, like all that, all kinds. Yep. So Justin Martyr is discussing the mass, and so I'm like, okay, Justin Martyr, and by the way, he's one of those one of those again another saint whose writings that you need to read because you know in in most in in most Protestant churches, they'll say that the bread and wine is symbolic, and here Justin Martyr is saying, no, it is not. This is something that needs to be believed. And not only that, John, he said only those who are baptized can partake, which was very interesting because there's a lot of Protestant dominations that say, you know, baptism is just a symbol of an inward faith. But Justin Martyr's like, no, baptism is transformative. So it goes back to baptismal regeneration which is what we believe as Catholics. Now, another uh, church father we read, and I know we went over some of these in our show together a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. but they're an important part of my journey here. Um, and I, I'm, I'm going to put that go show, ahead. I'm going to put that show in the show notes too. I'll put a link to that. So okay. people can go back and listen to that show too. Okay. But, uh, St. Irenaeus, he wrote this book called Against Heresies. And in book three, he writes what's co- writes about what's called the rule of faith. And he says, since, however, it would be very tedious in such a volume as this to reckon up the successions of all the churches, we do put to confusion all those who, in whatever manner, whether by an evil self-pleasing, by vainglory or by blindness and perverse opinion, assemble in unauthorized meetings by indicating that tradition derived from the apostles of the very great, the very ancient, and universally known church founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul. And also by pointing out the faith preached to men, which comes to our time by means of the successions of the bishops. For it is a matter of necessity that every church should agree with this church on account of its preeminent authority, that is, the faithful everywhere, inasmuch as the apostolic tradition has been preserved continuously by those faithful men who exist everywhere. This one right here was a hit with a frying pan that knocked me out. Mm Mm-hmm. St. Irenaeus is saying that if you're, and he's writing to the Gnostics here, if you're the true church, you need to be able to trace your lineage back to the apostles. We can do it. You can't. And not only that, every church must agree with the church at Rome because of its preeminent authority. There it is, second century. It was powerful to me. I mean, it woke <laughs> me up. I mean, it, it woke me up. So um, at that point, you realize two things, William. You realize that, number one, you were on a road that you didn't expect to be on, but you probably weren't going to be able to turn around from. Nope. And you, you realize that, number two, James White is the king of cognitive dissonance. <laughs> is. Yeah. yeah def- most definitely. Um, so I'm, I'm processing all this stuff, right? Now, I did have issues with the Assumption of Mary. I don't know why I had issues with this, even though – it's um, one of those things that – well, let me, let me explain it this way. I had issues with the Assumption of Mary, and cause in my mind, I couldn't um, reconcile it with Scripture. As I look back now, there we go, 12-1, the woman clothed in the sun, etc., because John's looking into heaven. So anyway, 
a video from Scott Hahn pops into my Facebook feed talking about the assumption of Mary. And he made this argument, and it makes so much sense, that it was so simple but so profound at the same time. He's like, look at all these great churches in the world. They have, you know, bodies of the, the remains of apostles, great saints, martyrs, etc. No church claims to have the remains of Mary. And if they did, it would be like the biggest church in the world. Mm-hmm. I was like, whoa, that makes so much sense, actually. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I mean, Lourdes, Lourdes gets four million pilgrims a year. Okay, could you, could you imagine the Cathedral of Mary, the Mother of Jesus? How many pilgrims would that would that church get every year? Yeah, I mean, can't, can't even imagine. So at this point, and this is a very abridged version, of course, but going through the church fathers, and not only church fathers, a lot of scripture. I mean, I'd probably say I read the Bible through during that time two or three times. Um, read a lot of commentaries. I, I read things on both sides. Because I mean, I'll be honest, remember, I was in Baptist seminary. Becoming Catholic would pretty much end my career ambitions. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, but at this point, um, I was faced with, faced with a decision. Um, become Catholic or commit intellectual suicide because I knew it was true and I'm still not going to do it. Right. So um, I did it. So remember, going back. I had already come into the church, right? Even though it was for the totally wrong reasons. And so I texted my wife. I think I think it was on a Friday morning. Um, texted my wife. I was waiting for work to open. I worked at a bank, so I'm in the parking lot. And I sent her a text message, and I just said, sorry. And she's like, sorry for what? And I said, sorry for all the hell I put you through over the last couple of years. Because now I know Catholicism is true. And she said something very, oh, to me, very profound, and I think a lot of people could learn from it. She's like, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to email all these people. She had named off all people I was reading: Scott Hahn, Dr. Michael Barber, Brent Petrie. All these, all these guys, I consider heroes in my faith right now because their work mm-hmm. has helped me so much. But she's like, I know you had to find out for yourself. Because I know if I kept prodding, it would push you further away. And so she just said I just kept praying, and my mom kept praying. And so I went to I went to confession that Saturday, and Father Schubert, God bless his soul. You know, I say, you know, bless me, Father. I've sinned. It's been two years since my last confession. John, you know what he said to me? Because he could tell I was super nervous. He said, "Did you bring a lunch?" <laughs> <laughs> um. And that little bit of comedy just took yeah, the tension. It was disarming. It was disarming. And, yeah, I think f- five minutes later, he's, he's like, son, I, I remember this. He said, son, everything that you went through, and this was almost prophetic. And he passed away a few years ago before yeah. I even started doing apologetics work and everything. He said, son, everything that you went through is going to be used for the glory of God. Yeah, amen. And Which goes full so- circle back to what we talked about earlier about Peter talking about our sufferings and Jesus talking about yes. our sufferings. Yes. Um, you know, it 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 it's it, it there's two things about this that just step out to me, William. Two things about your story. Number one, how it 
since Scott Hahn was so integral in your conversion story, or at least the last phase of your conversion story, because your story is so much mirrors his. And I mean, it, it there was a time when Scott Hahn's um, marriage to, to Kimberly was yes. very, very strained as a result yes. of he realized he was on a path he couldn't turn back from. Uh, and the second part of your story is people have faith. And it just, what William is saying here should give hope to all of us, including myself, who have family members who have fallen off the path, who have family members who have lost their faith. Uh, keep praying. Keep praying. The Holy Spirit Absolutely. can work in them even when you don't see it, even when you don't believe it. And God bless your wife for seeing that. She understood this is not my battle. This is God's battle. My job here is to pray. My job is to intercede. And if God gives me an opportunity, I'll plant a seed. But it's the work of the Holy Spirit that is the work of conversion. And uh, if you are seeking God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul, and your whole strength, it sounds like there's four persons there. Um, <laughs> so I, I've heard that somewhere, I'm sure, William. But anyway, if you are, the Holy Spirit will do his work. He'll he'll bring it to fruition. Yeah. You know, and the cool thing is on my YouTube channel, which is the Bible Catholic, um, I've had Scott Hahn on a couple times. And off air, I told him what that little video did. And he's such a humble dude, such a humble guy. He's like, what, me? How did I play any role in your conversion? I'm like... Man, you're sitting there acting like you haven't played a role in thousands of conversions. Right. Like, <laughs> Scott Scott Hahn is like, who me? Yeah, <laughs> and and that's just and and he's genuine. He's genuine. Yes. That's what's so so. He's it's like, not a he, feigned humility. It's, no, uh, and you look he's at like, all just, of the I'm great things. What God's, yeah, he's like, I'm just doing what Jesus is telling me to do. So yeah. I'm like, man, but like it it affected me in a huge in a huge way. So yeah. if anyone wants to, if anyone wants to hear a full version of my conversion story. Um, my friend Gary Machuda, he has a great radio show called Hands-On Apologetics on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Sorry, John, I got to plug Gary's stuff too. Um, but I was on his show a couple times and I gave the full length version. And speaking of homework, if you want a great book in your apologetics toolkit, if you will, uh, Gary wrote a great book a couple years ago called Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger. Um, cause you know, with the judo canon, you know, we have 73 books, Protestants have 66, we're missing seven, who has the right canon? Gary goes through his book, all the historical evidence showing why the Catholic church has it right. So it's a, it's a great read. Um, if you want to learn more about that and to help your Protestant friends understand that they're missing seven books. Mm -hmm. So William, I want you to close out. We only have a few minutes left in the show. I want you to close out by telling all of our listeners uh, where they can get access to some of the material that you've put out, including uh, your articles, videos, books that you've written. Uh, you have the floor, my friend. Oh, thanks, Don. Well, if, everyone, if anyone's interested, you can just go to williamhemsworth.com. Um, all the articles are there. I also repost a lot of articles from other websites that I think are helpful. Um, 
So WilliamHemsworth.com. I also have a Pathios page. It's, the blog is called The Pursuit of Holiness. That's more near Christianity, general Christianity stuff. My website is the Catholic stuff. So WilliamHemsworth.com, that'll give you a link to the books, the YouTube channel. And I, just, I hope it's just a, a help to those out there who just need a little inspiration, some, I guess, guidance, if you will, and just some other material to help them learn. And, John, I thank you for allowing me to come on your network every week as well. It's going to be a lot of fun. I've had a lot of fun today. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. And, you know, you and you and I have been friends for a few years now, and uh, it's just uh, it's just growing and growing. And uh, I just appreciate all that you do for our holy faith. And uh, would you close us with a prayer, William? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time today on today's program to talk about your great servant, Polycarp, uh, the readings that you're giving us at Mass tomorrow. Help us to understand that our trials, that whatever trials we may be going through, are going to form us, other purifying fire, if you will, to make us stronger, stronger people to help those around us. Bless us as we go forth today. Help us to serve you and to live for you. And bless our families. Bless all of those listening. And St. Polycarp, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And William, one last thing before you go. You and I have a mutual friend. Uh, Her name is Lisa Marie Nicole. Oh, yes. She actually did a theme song for us. Did you know that? I'm sorry, what was that, John? Cut out for a second. She actually did a theme song for our network. Yes, I have heard it. It's a great song. She's doing some great things out there. Everyone needs to check Um, her stuff out. I'm just, uh, she is, she is just terrific. She is just terrific. So we're going to close with uh, the theme song from Larissa Marie Nicole. And uh, I will see you next Saturday. God bless you. Have a great weekend, William. You too, John. Thank you.